welcome to including blog posts and podcasts of message number 50. I almost feel like I should throw a party to celebrate this unexpected milestone as I really thought I'd run out of steam here after a few attempts. So there's no one more pleasantly surprised than me that we're still here kicking media friendly ass. But instead of letting loose like mad things, here instead is the latest, the seventh, off message podcast featuring Sunday Business Post book and arts editor and their off message columnist Nadine O'Regan, who discussed with me the recent rather unceremonious dropping by Today FM of her long running Songs in the Key of Life radio show, her own not insignificant role in the globally successful West Cork podcast, growing up in a household steeped in print journalism her own very peculiar roundabout route into the business, and more. Enjoy. Nadine O'Regan, welcome to Off Message. Um, I feel a bit weird saying welcome to Off Message because... I know, you thief. Because, yeah, well, it's, uh, we're, I'm, I, I stole it from you and from Politico, um, although I didn't. I didn't, I didn't even know. Uh, I just loved the phrase. Um, your column uh, in the Sunday Business Post is called Off Message. Mm. Mm. So how long have you been doing that? How long before me did you? Oh, well, the Off Message column has existed for a very long time, substantially. Do we know what a very long time uh, is? The, well, your podcast certainly oh, uh, arrived only a as baby. a, it's a spring chicken. Uh, so before I wrote the Off Message uh, column, it was written by Catherine Armani. It's also been written by, over the years, um, Jennifer Connell at one stage and okay. also Niall Stanage at one stage. You've got to bear in mind that the Sunday Business Post magazine and the Sunday Business Post paper has been through, you know, uh, changes of design mm. over the years. So uh, there's been points when uh, things have changed up, uh, but that column has always been very important, uh, I think, to the paper and in its place in the magazine, because I suppose it provides... Um, I suppose a point of reference for people in the sense of what exactly one might expect from the magazine as you go through the pages because my column appears on page seven so it sort of sets the tone a little bit and I do think of that when I'm writing it because I do want it to reflect uh, a magazine, uh, the magazine in the sense mm. that it should be fairly lively and it should feel appropriate to what you'd find in a magazine as opposed to say in a more news orientated uh, direction in the main paper. Uh, but For also those who don't read the Sunday Business Post, off message as a column is mm. about what? So, well, as I do it, it can be about anything from uh, a personal issue that I'm having or thoughts on um, an event of the week. It could be about a royal wedding or it could be about uh, what it's like to be single in the modern age. It could be about uh, an issue, for example, that would be uh, definitely uh, contained in the main section, such as homelessness mm. or property. Uh, but it could also be relatively light. I've written very light columns as well. It's a blank well. canvas. It's a blank canvas in the sense that it roams far and wide. But tone-wise, I do try to keep it uh, fairly particular in that um, there's always a topic that's explored every week. I do add in a personal element, but it's meant to make you think a little bit and give a bit of a philosophical take, but not go the full uh, op-ed style. There's no philosophy on off message either in the blog or the podcast. I'll warn you of that now. There'll be no philosophy around <laughs> here now. <laughs> well, you know, I'm basically here to reclaim the, the right. name. <laughs> She'll run off with the title. I'll have to think, uh, uh, well, think of I another one. It was pretty cheeky when you got in touch. I was like, all right. But, uh, but I said I'm getting in touch because we have a name in common. We do. We, we do. do. We do. Now, you're the books and arts editor I with am. the Sunday Business Post. So obviously, as well as writing the off message column, you're beavering away behind the scenes. Yep. So I write uh, profiles, features, interviews with authors, directors, musicians. I also write reviews, but then I also commission people. So mm. people rarely... I suppose, realise what goes on behind the scenes in a magazine. They only tend to notice the writers who are up front. And I suppose one of the things that 
sometimes drives me a bit crazy is that people will say to me, oh, I read your article. And by that, they always mean the off message column. But that week I could have written five or six pieces. And sometimes you do think about the fact that depending on how uh, an article is, I suppose, designed, you a lot of people barely notice the journalist's uh, name or their byline mm-hmm. pick at all. Well, uh, if there's a picture beside it, you've some hope. You've some hope. You've some hope. But I mean, that's probably as it should be. But but there is a lot more to, I suppose, uh, being involved in the magazine from a behind the scenes perspective, because you are commissioning. I do commission uh, writers every week. I'm editing uh, the arts content and um, Elaine Prendeville edits the magazine overall. So we're working together and it's a busy, busy environment with an awful lot going on. And as you can imagine, a Sunday paper, you know, people Mm. are very much beavering away. This is something that um uh, intrigues me uh, with um, arts pr- uh, on television and uh, radio and in magazines. Um, do you ever feel that all you are is a plugging instrument? Like no one will talk to you unless they have something to sell. It's become more of a problem. Mm. When I first started getting heavily into reading music magazines, in particular in the 90s, I was a huge fan of Q magazine. I read the NME, Hot Press, uh, there was a magazine called Vox, and I would hoover up those magazines. I'd spend all my pocket money on them. And actually, they were mainly catered for men, so there'd always be ads for BMW and expensive yep, fancy watches yeah, yeah. on glossy uh, sheets uh, in the magazine. But I felt like they were telling me the truth. And I think possibly... But they were still only talking about people who had product to sell, who were... they? Yeah, but I... Th- they were only, generally speaking, mm. talking about people who had products to sell. But I think it was a slightly more innocent time in that I felt like a negative review was more likely to happen. Uh, whereas these days, it's interesting to notice the preponderance of five-star reviews oh, really? for albums in British publications that would seem to have a vested interest, possibly in keeping that band's profile very high or maybe they might have a cover um, I remember that accusation being thrown at the music mags even back then that they were sweet on some bands and were overly kind to them for instance well what I would say is I feel that I don't quite know anymore mm. whereas I think in the 90s I really bought into the idea that everybody was being Absolutely honest. Now, mind you, I <laughs> How went sweet and innocent, Nadine. <laughs> I went out and I bought. Uh, I don't know. Do you remember that band? Is it uh, Manson? Attack of the Grey Lanterns. Yeah, 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 I remember Manson. I bought that album based on like an absolutely sterling review and thought it was one of the worst things really? I've ever heard. Oh my god, I hated it. Hated it. Hated it. Now, I know some people do love them. Go back and have a listen to it. I don't love them, but I remember it was all right at the time. And because yeah. of the music licensing laws and podcasts, we can't play a track from it now. We can't. So. Go Google it, folks. But I remember thinking that it it was just that everybody was being very true. Now, this could have been naive, but whatever about then, I think now is a more fraught time because the music magazines are in crisis. Uh, print media is suffering badly. And it, there's a sense where everybody's feeling a little bit more fragile. And... We give out a lot about bloggers and we give out a lot about influencers, but I think we should also pay attention to ourselves. And I'm very proud to belong to a paper that is independent and that doesn't have any agendas. Um, But having said that, I now have, I suppose, a healthy dose of um, cynicism when I look around. And that is probably because I have worked in the industry for a long time. You talked about um, people only talking to you when they have product to push. I actually don't mind that so much because... In all honesty, the consumer, the person who's reading the magazine or reading the paper, they're there and they're reading with a view to maybe going to that exhibition, buying that album, Mm. reading that book. So that's a hook for them. Mm. And why not? So I don't mind that. um, But I I do mind that it's become a more difficult world to navigate. Okay, Um, I, I will pull you up on your notion that the Sunday Business Post and there's a big hint in the title like every media has an agenda every media is 
you know, has a reason for being out there. The Sunday Business Post is pro-business, you know, features people in business all the time, sells business. So it's, 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 I'm not saying it's, it's any better or worse than any other media outlets, but it, to say it doesn't have an agenda. Well, I mean, that's a topic more than a, it, you know. a, and, and I mean, I suppose what I'm, what I'm trying to say with regard to the term agenda is that I don't, that I'm very proud to belong to an organisation where I have never once been asked to push any particular mm-hmm. ideal or any particular philosophy in the service of any interest. Right. Other than the pursuit of delivering a great art section. It's one of those arguments that I've heard loads. And uh, as a freelancer, I get gigs and no one ever asks me to push an agenda or whatever. But I'm a safe pair of hands. I wouldn't get the gig if I wasn't on message. Do you know what I mean? It, it's it's an interesting, it's more than a philosophical debate. Like I've had this, bef- I, I had this with in the last podcast with Michael O'Keefe, the BAI, and we were talking about fake news and about how, you know, the alt-right and the, the Trumps of this world, et cetera, et cetera, are pushing against an open door because people know that they're not getting the truth from the media. Now, they're certainly not getting it from, that, you know, those who are shouting fake news who are just making stuff up. Mm. But there's no doubt that every organisation has got to keep its advertisers happy or it's got to keep if you're state sponsored if you're semi-state like already you know got to keep the governments the governments of the day the ruling classes sweeter to get the license fee etc etc so we are only given gigs because we're they know we won't go off on one we're say we are a safe parent they don't have to tell us they don't have to come down to us and say why are you printing that nonsense nadine o'regan well i can only speak for myself uh, so, whatever circumstances you found yourself in, <laughs> this is the general. This is the general media world we live in. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that, but that's kind of getting back to what I'm saying that I think it is tough. Um, but personally, like, I'd love to see greater competition in the media market in Ireland, in the sense of, like, for example, I come from a regional, uh, small local newspaper background. Mm. I was raised in Skibbereen. Um, I come from a family where. You know, newspapers are very much in our blood. So my grandfather uh, was the editor of the Southern Star. It was then taken over by my father, who became editor and edited for 50 years before his death. And the paper continues to be uh, an independent regional newspaper in West Cork that is on its own. Mm. And that is very important because very, very Mm. few newspapers now are existing as independent entities and we need more independent entities in this country. Tell me a little bit more about um, the Southern Star and if you're brought up in a household um, where two generations before your dad, your granddad are editors at a you know, big local newspaper, it must have swung you in the direct I mean did you ever feel I'm not saying pressurised but is that where you got the attraction for working in in the media well my dad always said to me you know don't become a freelance journalist um, you won't make much money and people won't treat you well and he was right um, freelance journalism is very difficult I didn't study to become a journalist I did English and philosophy in UCC and then I did creative writing as a MPhil in Trinity. So I had no intentions of becoming a journalist at all. But it was strange. Every single time I thought about what, practically speaking, I would do, I always found myself like getting, like saying, oh, maybe I could do a week's work experience somewhere. So I wound up at the Connacht Tribune. Um, then I wound up writing for the college newspaper. Then I wound up writing for Hot Press. And it was all really, really accidental because I never intended on... The, I remember having a similar conversation with someone at college going, I want to be a journalist. And five or six years later, get, have, holding an NUJ card in my hand, I went, how did that happen? 
Yeah. And it's funny because a lot of people and actually people who listen to this podcast may be interested in listening to a media podcast to figure out how to get into journalism. And I understand that it's incredibly frustrating to hear people who are in media say, oh, I just kind of just kind of happened. But the truth is. Journalism sometimes finds you rather than the mm. other way around. And there are so many people who have journalism degrees who do not go on to become journalists. The skill set involved in becoming a journalist is actually quite hard to define, despite the fact that they have college courses based around it. A lot of the time, and friends have said this to me, I look like to them like somebody who is endlessly cramming for their junior cert in that what tends to happen is I get given a gig and everything else goes out the window and then I pursue that gig and until it's done and then suddenly the next assignment comes up. Uh, so for seven years I was a full-time freelance journalist um, in my 20s and doing exactly that, writing for publications and gradually getting into radio as well. How did you said you ended up in the Connacht The Connacht Tribune. Tribune. So what happened was I was in UCC studying English and philosophy and then my friends wanted to go to Galway for the summer. I was friends with a band. Um, so there were four of them and then we had another few friends as well and we all said, look, we'll go to Galway. And I had supposedly, vaguely had got a contact in the Connacht Tribune and I'd been sort of told in a roundabout way that I'd be given a week's work experience. So I was delighted about this and turned up in the Connacht Tribune on the Monday like I'm here um, and I asked for the name of the person who was supposed to be giving me this week's work experience and it turned out he himself had gone on three weeks holidays and nobody had a clue who I was and I probably did like a very very sad face at that point and the boss of the publication said Asher look let her sit in the corner and you know, maybe she could learn a bit over the next few, four or five days. So I did that for the week and they all said thanks very much to me on the Friday and I said thank you so much for the experience. And then on Monday I just turned up again. Like what in was the going office. through your head that you I'd turned up again? Did you know you were being a, a bit of a bit of a, a bit p- cheeky? Bit cheeky I, well, I mean, I just thought they seemed nice. <laughs> <laughs> They thought it was gas. Um, Did you get paid during any of that? No. So I... You did an un- unpaid internship. I know. Very controversial. I know. Yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah. sometimes that's the thing. Like I was I was 19 and, um, you know, for a lot of the time I was just in a corner playing Pac-Man. But to be honest, by the end of the summer, I'd written tons of half-page articles. I'd been out in assignments. I'd been to the courts. Um, the people in that office were extremely nice and they, they were just kind, you know, they, they took an interest. They but they didn't pay you for any of those articles? No, got to the end, went into the office and I said, thank you so much. And they said, thank you so much and looked at me and I looked at them, <laughs> tail between my legs, slunk out the door. Didn't offer you a contract? Uh, n- well, I was going back to college, but they were, you know, it was something that is, it did stand to me because when I went back to college, and funnily enough, I had never written for my dad for the for the Southern Star at that point because my dad wouldn't have entertained the notion of the, the nepotism mm-hmm. of, of having his daughter yeah, in the yeah. paper without prior experience. <laughs> so the Connor Tribune was actually my first um, publication to be published in. But then I went back to college and went into the university examiner where Fiona Sheehan actually was the then editor who's now the Irish editor of the Irish Independent. Yeah. And he looked at me and he said, well, have you ever written anything? And I was like, why, in fact, and handed him this enormous oh, wow. folder okay. yeah, yeah. Okay. of Connacht Tribune yeah, yeah. material. So it was actually a great way to, to kind of get in because then I became like the music, I think it was the music editor at that time and wound up going to the Hot Press Awards in Belfast, wound up doing all sorts of stuff. And yeah, see, the funny thing is while doing all this, I never had a thought in my head about being a journalist. It just was something I was interested in. I was interested to interview musicians. I was in love with music, in love with literature. And the thought of getting to actually be in the same company as people who made art was just beyond exciting to me. And I know that probably sounds like very hyper enthusiastic, but it is the truth. It's how I felt about it. Is that enthusiasm still there? Absolutely. Um, but different now. Before, I think I thought that musicians and artists were sort of godlike characters. And now I 100% separate an artist from their work. I can think that a book is phenomenal. I can think that an album is phenomenal. But when I meet the person, I don't see it as having 
um, this direct association yeah. with them yeah, in a yeah. way that I would have thought when I was 19 or 20. Yeah, yeah. I see the person as the person. And I think I've needed to separate them in that way because in my job throughout the, you know, the, the years, I've interviewed a lot of really, really great people. And if I walked into a room with that same reverence for their character, it would have been very, very difficult to proceed after a while. Yeah, no, the intimidation I, I, factor I, re- I remember. Yeah, I, I actually remember the same thing when I started in uh, pretending to be a music journalist at Hot Press. Um, I wasn't very good; didn't last very long. Uh, but even when I was filling in for Fanning, I remember in the early stages, you know, interviewing people and kind of sitting there going. Oh my God, Bjork's in front of me, or whatever. Actually, no. By the time Bjork, I interviewed Bjork, I was, I could see she was bored, silly, because she was on the, you know, the promo yeah. uh, trail, and it was just. I remember being told I was, I was going in to interview Beck, and I had the worst cold, and the publicist came out and she saw me sniffing, and she was like, Beck does not allow people with colds near him. Do you have a cold? And I was like, mm, No. <laughs> 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 we're like trying to keep in the sniffles for the duration of that half hour and also not get intimidated by the fact that uh, he was sitting right across from me and you know he is one of those guys he's got huge charisma mm, and he's an, a, a fascinating character, character as yeah. well so all that time uh, freelancing mm. how long ago did you join the Sunday Business Post? Well, I was freelancing for the Sunday Business Post as well, mm. and then I joined as a staff member in 2007. Just so, before the recession. Yeah, it was funny. <laughs> it was funny because I'd been offered several jobs, and I like fairly loftily turned down quite a few. I'd say now, in fairness, they thought, I don't know what they thought uh, when I walked out of those offices, because I was offered jobs before. Like what kind of jobs well, did jobs you turn down? Well, jobs I hadn't down? applied for. Um, but people would have called me in and, and been very nice. And Are we talking journalist jobs? Yeah, Are we, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> You're being very vague here, Nadine. But, I was, but I, was, I was actually working on a novel. Uh, and uh, I was like, no, 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 going to stick with the book. Okay. Uh, and this was when I was around 24 or so. So I did spend three years writing a book um, and just turned down everything. And that book has never seen the light of day? No, I didn't think it was good enough, so I didn't send it out. No. And I'm quite happy. Wow. I remain very happy with that decision because, honestly, what one of my writing tutors said to me in college was, you have to write 100,000 bad words before you get to one good one. And I believe that okay. to be true. I don't think anyone is served by sending out something that you don't think is good enough. Is there a, and I think is, that's true in journalism as well. Is there a book still in you still? Who knows, Pat. <sighs> Uh, but what I would say is I turned down these jobs and then an opportunity came up a post was created in the Sunday Business Post for Arts Correspondent and the then editor Cliff Taylor asked to meet with me met him and got on very well with him and was offered the position and I remember having a chat with my parents about it at the time and they were like, please, <laughs> please take it. <laughs> because they were like, you're going to yeah, be yeah. someone who's wandering around the place in a dressing gown and you will know nothing about what it's like. I'd never worked really in yeah, an office yeah. properly because yeah, yeah. I'd been full time freelance ever since coming out of college. And I said, all right, I'll give it a try. And I did. And then the economy literally just went and jumped over a cliff. It was the most astonishing a transformation because I don't know if you remember what it was like <laughs> in do terms I, of I freelance do. rates nosedived uh, j- freelance jobs became scarcer I had two huge television projects in London that were in development and that the broadcaster loved and they suddenly just died yeah like it was so rough and watching people around me like really brilliant freelance journalists suddenly turn to other industries mm-hmm. take on jobs they wouldn't previously have considered um, in radically different roles. Like it was actually really, really disheartening and upsetting. And I believe there's a full generation of people who could have been much, much bigger names and been very, very prominent in media um, that we'll never know about now because they literally had to leave. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's recession for you. It's recession, but the thing is, it's obvious. And it was a brutal recession. But it's obvious when it comes to, I suppose, areas of industry where it, they're easier to point to. But when it comes to freelance journalists, they're a very unseen kind of bunch mm. in some respects. Mm-hmm. And we need people who are independent and people who can uh, 
without fear or favour, point out inadequacies in our system. So when you have a shrinking pool of journalists who are getting paid less and less money to do their job, that's a huge issue. Do you think journalism is in trouble? I know we're post-recession now, we're out the tail end, allegedly, but online has changed the whole journalism uh, set up For since. me, yeah. I mean, for me, we're in kind of the Wild West internet. It's a time where there has been a revolution. There's a paradigm shift. Every industry is struggling to cope with what the internet has done to their industry. And a lot of jobs and talented people have been lost as a consequence Mm. of the transformation. But at the same time, there are, I mean, I hate to use the the green shoots metaphor, but there are uh, a lot of interesting... I suppose, new avenues emerging. We're talking on one. I mean, a podcast podcast didn't exist, you know, 15 years ago. Yeah. And long-form journalism is emerging in a different way as well. You can see that people are increasingly turning off their radios. And to be honest, once cars all have Spotify and the capacity to play out podcasts, we're looking at potentially a very different time. Mm. I say 15 years ago, I'm sure someone listening will go, no, the first podcast was recorded in more than 15 years ago. I don't know when they started recording. I picked 15 years ago off the top of my head. Um, Speaking of podcasts um, and speaking of radio, you recently, because obviously the Sunday Business Post is your main job, Mm -hmm. but like most people... Uh, who have high profile jobs in the media you have other projects on the side so many projects <laughs> so many projects <laughs> everyone think thinks it's a glamour thing whatever but they're, they're hard work I know but well, you can I just say as well I think it's really important to do many things um, everyone I know working in newspapers now would see it as part of their job to put themselves mm. forward in as many types of media as possible from Twitter to TV to radio simply because if you're really existing in the media properly in 2018, you exist in all parts of the media. Yeah, because it is, the media now is a multifaceted beast. Yeah. It's not, you don't pick one or the other. It's everything from Snapchat Mm. through to print media. I I started on Instagram recently. I haven't, I don't do the Snapchat thing. Uh, God, I sound so old when I say the Snapchat thing. I can't do everything. Um, But very recently, you had bad news with one of those projects, yeah. which you went very public on. Um, and we, as a freelancer, I, I went, wow, okay, there's another one. Been there, worn the T-shirt. What was your bad news? So I produced and presented um, a radio show called Songs in the Key of Life for four years, first on Dublin station TXFM, and then it transferred to Today FM in 2016. Uh, it's a radio show that... I'm hugely proud of. Uh, I pitched it, uh, developed it, put it out there, and it won several awards. If you haven't heard it, it's a show where I interview different guests, anyone could be in the arts, could be just well-known, so anyone from sort of Roddy Doyle uh, to Dermot Gavin to Christine and the Queens, and talk to them about their lives, and they play music that reflects different points Mm -hmm. in their lives. Uh, The show really sadly for me um, was cancelled not given the opportunity to proceed uh, as of a few weeks ago so the last show was on July 1st but I suppose the thing to say is that and I know I've said it already and I've said it on my blog but I'm really proud of the show Mm -hmm. Um, I loved doing it and yeah it was something that Were you taken by surprise when it happened? Did you even think I mean, all, all right, let's let um, Songs in the Key of Life. Uh, it's not, it's a great format. It's like Desert Island Discs to it a degree. Is. It's like John Kelly's Mystery Train. Um, you know, it's, there are variations on it and it makes for wonderful radio. But nothing lasts forever. Unless you're the Late Late Show. Nothing lasts forever. Did you have any notion that what it was coming down the line that Today FM were they say they're revamping their weekend schedule you know 
It's really difficult to, I suppose, get into it over much because I do have my perspective on it, but I also respect the people who are making hard calls. And personally, it's probably only appropriate for me to say how I felt about the product because I did love putting the show out and getting to be part of a station that I had wanted to be part of for a very long time. Like, so I would have in college, like the first, the first radio station that really would have meant a lot to me would have been Today FM. Oh, so what I was, was it about Today FM? Uh, I loved Ray Darcy. Um, I loved Tom Dunn doing Pet Sounds. And then of course, Paul McLoon afterwards. Mm. Um, I really connected with um, the, the kind of informality of the tone that managed to mesh a more lighthearted and personal approach together with very serious issues. Um, and it's funny because that would have been seen as sort of the golden days of, I suppose, that particular station. And it was the station, I think, that made me really fall in love with, with the medium. Um, but as time goes on, things change. Um, there have been an amazing roll call of presenters going through Today FM and I, I am very proud to have been one of them so I mean I'd rather I'd rather kind of focus on that in a way than than focus on I suppose aspects of production that I'm really not privy to you know yeah um, we, we, we rarely know why decisions yeah, are made um, it would be a leap it would be an assumption and, and that's not right but you were gutted I was gutted are you still gutted a few weeks later have you got over it yet? Do you ever get over something like that? Um, you know what? I'll be in a better position to tell you mm. once I have 100% locked down the next what's gig. What's next? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, every cloud in the sil- that cliche, every cloud silver lining, you lose a gig and it makes you get up off your arse and hustle the next mm. one. And if you get a run of a year, two years, three years, four years on something, you know, you're looking at it going, yeah, this is great. Yeah, but I, ha- I have to say as well, I suppose, that as time goes on as well, like, you change. And there is no doubt in my mind that had I been a presenter on, for example, Spin uh, in my 20s, um, that whenever I got into my 40s, for example... It would no longer be appropriate, maybe, for me to be on a youth station mm-hmm. because that is what spin is. Mm-hmm. It's a youth station. So I think these are turbulent times for the media, but equally it is appropriate that as you proceed through your own life, you proceed from maybe, I don't know, one station to another as your own life circumstances change. You came change. from Phantom. Because I came from Phantom. I first met yeah. you on, when I came back from London in '09. I remember you put together a selection of music for a piece or a program you were doing of Irish music that I had maybe missed while I was away. You were doing you were doing some I can't remember what the title of the program was, but it was It's probably the kiosk. It was the kiosk. Yeah. That's it. That's yeah. it. Uh and so Phantom for those who don't know was the more alternative music yeah. station uh, that became when News Corp bought it became TX FM yeah. uh, and then you moved from that as into today so that's a journey uh, Phantom was amazing like I I just loved it uh, when I auditioned auditioned when I, it was kind of like doing an audition though because you have to do you, there are a lot of voice tests and all that kind of stuff but I remember going in and being interviewed by um, it was Simon Marr actually and John Cadell interviewed me for Phantom and I went in and the questions you know ordinarily in an interview you get asked about what your ambitions are where do you see yourself in five years time all that kind of stuff but they were like what were the last three gigs that yeah. you went to? Yeah, yeah. yeah you know, yeah. who, in your opinion, is the best emerging Irish artist of the year? You know, every single question. They wanted to know that you knew your music. Yeah, and uh, I had some questions of my own as well because I was so full of enthusiasm about the whole thing. And I think by the time we got to the end of the hour, the clock actually fell off the wall, which sort of signaled that, you know, maybe wow. I had <laughs> talked there too was much. An omen. Um, but I was hoping to do a music show. And I think once we'd done the interview, they were like, oh, no, she should be doing a talk talk show because clearly that was maybe more where my I suppose talents lay if any but but they they were like 
come back to us and do this and I was like what because I was I just wanted to play music um but joining Phantom was one of the best things I've ever done because I was surrounded by people who absolutely cared passionately about music and just the 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 way that we would all sit there and discuss at length after a show you know the value of a potential smiths reunion or what the new arctic monkeys record was really like you know people would sit around and just they'd want to be talking about those things what they talked about on air was the same as what they talked about afterwards it wasn't a job it was a passion and it was amazing for me to be surrounded by people like that it really felt like um, getting a taster of I suppose a life that see as a freelance journalist when I was on my own in a room writing you just don't have those mm. that kind of camaraderie yeah it's a very um, solitary yeah. existence and so I joined Phantom in 2006 so it wasn't until the following year that I joined the Business Post and it was just the beginning of a whole new phase of my life so it was it was absolutely brilliant and mad stuff happened I mean there was a time when a toaster sent the entire station off the air uh, for, for some reason oh like an hour oh okay. uh, but after that an email went out you know no one was allowed to use the toaster no more toast and <laughs> phantom your toast <laughs> but I mean that station like it was a labour of love from, from the from the people and there were many people involved in that consortium they had been um, the pirate radio they station had, beforehand they had, and Cap- now what, what was the not capital what was it well it was always phantom oh was it phantom as yeah, uh, yeah from, okay but from the garden shed okay. yeah, uh, yeah. rather than from North Wilkie I met them when I was over from London when they were going legit yeah and I had a chat with them about working I, I, I think if I had been in Dublin I possibly would have started working with Phantom. But because I was in London mm. and at that stage had no plans to come home, yeah, like they weren't in a position to offer me, you know, come home and we'll give you five days a week, a proper gig. Mm. Um, but I, I sometimes wonder if I had been in Dublin, well, things would have been different, but would Phantom have been part of that difference? Well, it gets back to what I'm saying about, I suppose, diversity in the media, like, with Phantom, uh, which is now sadly gone, but 8 Radio exists, uh, that provides a form of competition. Nova exists. Uh, you've got not only the RT, like obviously RT Radio 1, 2FM, but now all the digital streams as mm. well. Like the consumer does need to feel that there's a, a preponderance like of different stations they could possibly listen to, that there's a fight for their attention. The problem there, of course, is that we lose out that phenomenon of water cooler moments. Because back in back in my day, when I was young, um, you know, it was only like when I was watching television, there was RT. There wasn't even RT one. It was just RT. Uh, we had we didn't even have the the English channels. So everyone at school the next day talked about the same program. Yeah, it's what I love about the Late Late Show. Actually, uh, I love the fact that it's the one show that everyone sits down. And they've seen it, they tweet it, uh, everybody is influenced by it and it makes me feel like I'm part of a community in Ireland. And it's funny because when I moved into uh, my new house like last year, I didn't have a TV for a while and I realised that the only thing (laughs) that I was really, really, really missing was the Late Late Show. And um, and actually Graham Norton as well, to be fair. Uh, But a a few months later, I actually brought my mum and my sister to to be in the audience of the Late Late Show because I wanted to see how it was put together and yeah it was just really interesting because there's still that feeling that ripple of anticipation mm. that you're being part of an event that the entire country is sitting down to watch yeah, yeah. and there's very little of that big shiny floor live mm. television yeah and like, people can be cynical about it and people always will be but that's also be partly Skeptical because sometimes rather but that's than partly cynical, because yeah. they care Mm-hmm. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, they they're still fussy. Care they have opinions. Yeah. To give out about it. And Twitter is the new shouting at your television. Yeah. And listen, if people are hate watching or hate reading, they're still reading and they're still watching. So I think uh, producers need to remember that they're engaged. Speaking of watching the late late, what media do you consume? Do you? I'm I'm guessing you still read newspapers. Obviously, you work in the business. Uh, have you always read newspapers? Not just because of you, you know, dad and granddad. Yeah, but I would be honest in saying that I'm a huge supplements fan. So when I buy a paper, uh, whatever paper it is, I'll go straight to the magazine part of it. I'll go straight to the arts part of it. That's just because it's 
the nature of my interests. Um, I'll read the main section after, uh, but it's kind of important. And something I say to young journalists coming into the market, like because I teach a journalism course off and on at the Irish Writers' Centre, and I always say to them, well, listen, it's nice that you want to write, but what are you actually reading and who are you actually reading? And when you buy something, if you buy something, because these days a lot of people don't, like what's the first part of the product that you're going towards? Because be truthful with yourself. The area that you're reading most into is the area that you will write best from. Uh, so if you're thinking, oh, I'd love to be um a political journalist but actually you're mainly reading about interiors <laughs> maybe rethink that a little bit you know what I mean but what I would as well say to younger journalists coming in is that I think it's really dangerous that there's this impulse to want to write but not to feel that they need to read uh, you have to read so widely to be capable of writing well and it's a truism but it bears repeating because it seems like a younger generation are just not getting on board with that uh, Sometimes when I buy a newspaper in a shop, I feel these days like I'm bringing an alien product to the, to the cash register because people do look at you a little bit because they think news now is free. They're only consuming media in 300 word mm. uh, segments uh, because articles for the Internet tend to be shorter. And honestly, if people listening to this podcast are thinking about getting into that industry, stretch yourself, because if you're going to write well, you need to read widely. I wonder, is it also true in print journalism, in writing? When I was doing um, television back in the day here, we'd get young kids in on, you know, work, TY, whatever it was called. You know, they'd be at school and they'd come in for a week just to have a look at how it was made. And at some stage, as one of the presenters on the show, the kid would come over to me and say, Pat, can I ask you a question? And I knew what the question was before they asked it. They'd say to me, what advice would you give me? I want to be a television presenter. And I would say to them, don't. Mm. And I'd watch their face drop. And then I'd say, I don't mean don't ever. I mean, don't now. Go travel. Go work. Go read. Go study. Go get a life so that you bring something to the table. Mm. Now, if you're fresh out of journalism college and you haven't done any of those hey, you could still be a brilliant writer. I'm not saying you have to, but I think the, certainly it was the advice I gave people in radio and television. There was nothing worse than someone doing an interview mm. where they actually hadn't, they had no perspective apart from, you know, their yeah. life until then. Well, I think these days as well, there is kind of a gap between, a really st serious gap actually, between the attitudes of millennials who don't really value old what school traditional millennials? media. Um, well, Okay, so I would it's say it's used that disparagingly. It a is, lot. but see, I was about to say there's an older generation who don't value millennials, mm. and then there's the younger generation, i.e., the millennials, who don't value old school media. Yeah. So you have this growing divide, a uh, kind of schism between them, and I've been interested to see recently that a number of my friends have been advised that rather than trying to persuade millennials around their way of thinking, that actually, if anything, they need to go the other way and have a look at how millennials are doing things. And there's a reason for that, because the way in which millennials are consuming the media, that is the future. Yeah. That is how we're yeah, going yeah. to be. We're all our own brands. We all exist on a kind of a little island where if I talk about a new album that I love, you don't know who who that band is because there are a million bands out there and they're all occupying their own little regions mm. on Spotify and there's a million podcasts out there and we don't unite around anything besides as we were mentioning the Late Late Show so it's actually really um, a strange and bewildering time and I think sometimes an older generation can be disparaging and they need to stop doing that and try and look to see where they can learn because there's nothing worse than this sort of uh, lofty and kind of patronising yeah. attitude to people talking about how they have a fondness for avocados and they'll never buy a house. Millennials couldn't give a toss about buying a house at this point. They have long ago accepted they're going to be renting for their whole yeah, lives. Yeah, yeah. They're going to be probably existing on Tinder for a way longer period yeah, as yeah. a singleton. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're not going to get married as quickly. And everything from their media is to their whatever to their sex lives is sort of on a Online. time time yeah, yeah. Or yeah, arrangement yeah. where it's going to last for a particular amount of time and there are great sadnesses that come with that I know 
uh, a lot of people who use online uh, dating apps would say that it's it's really really distressing to to be in a world where there's that sort of next next philosophy uh, but at the same time there's also great liberation and freedom in that there's a sense of choice and even people who live in the countryside uh, can hopefully get a date whereas maybe a generation ago mm. they were sort of condemned to being on their own yeah yeah, yeah i mean there are pros and cons to everything mm. i mean when the phone was introduced people thought oh it's the end of the world mm. people can contact you in the privacy of your own home it's madness well we also all, always thought that one media one form of media would kill the other one and all that's actually happening is that we're creating greater choice there is an awful lot of shrinkage happening and that's really really hard to see it's really hard to be in an environment where you're more likely to see rounds of redundancies than uh, doors opening and new opportunities emerging Uh, but you have to hope that as the paradigm does shift and we have as you were mentioning earlier uh, come into maybe a tiny mini boom, which also seems a bit scary. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, believe I mean, I don't know. Either. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. But but that maybe just maybe uh, there will be new ideas and new opportunities as a result of that. So obviously you read print. What other media? And you watch the late late. I'm a bookworm. I I just I would consume novels uh, at a tremendous rate and. It's partly for work. I mean, I do a lot of reviews, but it's partly just because I think books are the best companions you could possibly have. I think reading, and particularly reading fiction, um, it gives you a greater sense of empathy into other people's lives. It makes you feel less alone and it engages you philosophically. It brings you into territory that maybe you hadn't previously considered. It opens you up. And I honestly believe that it's one of the greatest things you could do with your spare time. I know not everyone Who is a reader. Who has spare time anymore? <laughs> I, know, I know not everyone's a reader and I know a lot of people are reading their tablets or their iPhones before they're going to bed instead of picking up a book. Uh, but the thing is, the more you give reading, the more it gives you back. Okay, so reading, obviously social media you use a lot. Love social media, I do. I love Twitter. Um, I, I've found, it's one of the things about the radio show, like for Songs in the Key of Life, even though it was a huge blow, obviously, to lose my show, um, the blow was somewhat cushioned by the incredible kindness and the reaching out by complete strangers a lot of the time on social media. People sending me direct messages who wrote me the most beautiful and lovely things about the show. There was one woman who said that she listened to the interview I did with Brett Anderson and she listened to it with her daughter and her daughter's 19 and was inspired to form a band. Like that's amazing. There you go. Yeah. Um, there was another woman who told me that she had asked her whole Leaving Cert class to listen to the show every week uh, to break down how it was structured and what they would get from it, um, which I also thought was incredible. There were people who just wrote me really lovely things and I haven't done any amount of like I didn't want to retweet or make public mm. any of those kind of things but I'm, they meant a lot to me mm. and, and and you know well-known people got in touch as well and, and that was just incredibly kind um, we hear about the abuse women get on social media mm. all the time do you get abuse because we don't hear about that nice stuff that you're just nope. after telling me I, I, I actually find it baffling because I actually have had I've never had I wait for it now maybe with this podcast they'll, we'll, we'll oh, begin. they'll start um, right on the count of three there's always some stuff up on message boards if you care to have a look at that kind of thing. Yeah. But to your face generally, via Twitter or via no, Facebook. Generally, no. I think it's because of what I do. Like everybody who knows me knows that like I absolutely love mm. what I do and it's more about getting that to a public than it is about uh being I suppose um like there are other people who've done really, really significant work um, who have become sort of, if you like, hate figures for a particular type of audience and some might say a very sexist audience. And I haven't come under that scrutiny. That's not to say that it couldn't happen at a particular time, mm-hmm. but I have been very fortunate so far. I'll be honest, though. I think part of the reason for that is because the Sunday Business Post is paywalled. Oh, uh, mm. So if people could immediately click and see say for example the off message column at times because I have written about topics that range from Mm. uh, abortion through to religion Uh, so I'm sure plenty of people 
read the column and have an issue with it. I certainly get old fashioned letters that can be very negative. Not written in green ink. Letters. Um, that, that was the cliche well, back always, in the day. I always keep them and consider them. But like when someone takes the trouble to write you a letter, um, you know, they have a point of view that is generally being framed in the more respectful framework of a letter, if you like. Especially if they sign their name to yeah, it and their and address. Yeah. yeah. But when somebody is just blasting you online, like I've seen like with a lot of uh, friends and contemporaries, then generally speaking, there's an awful lot of ugliness associated with that. Like I have been really lucky, um, but I honestly believe that it's because the paper's paywalled. Okay. Um yeah, and you still listen to radio, obviously. I love radio, yeah. yeah. Talk like, radio, music radio? Um, talk radio, like, uh, I'm I'm actually a big fan of Around Tuberty's show, uh, which, of course, you're producing at the moment. Currently with in Dave RTE, Fanning. yeah, yeah. Um, and just love um, listening to the very simple art of conversation as conducted by somebody who is weaving in and out of different topics, bringing on people who might be in their kitchens Mm -hmm. uh, getting ready to put out a line of washing and then going from that to a well-known author or uh, a topic or maybe going out and going you know into just going around Ireland doing um, road shows and making you feel like that a program can exist in Donnybrook in Dublin 4 but then get right out there and be in Skibbereen or be in Belfast be wherever mm-hmm. um, but yeah so for me that's that's a big draw obviously anything arts related is, is a big thing for me as well arena is an obvious one and music radio like I love listening to late night specialist music shows and there are so many people who I know and wouldn't I wouldn't want to leave people out but yeah there's some great great broadcasters around what about podcasts Podcasts, um, I've listened to Serial, obviously loved it, uh, West Cork. Uh, you were involved in the West Cork yeah, one. Yeah. Uh, so tell people what the West Cork one is about. So the West Cork podcast uh, investigates the murder of Sophie Duplantier uh, in West Cork um, 20 years ago now. Mm-hmm. And it looks into the strangeness of the case but also investigates uh, the the circumstances, the the mistakes made by Gardie, to be mm-hmm. honest, and then the suspects. And I suppose chief among them, as people would know, uh, was uh, Ian Bailey. Um, and the reason I was interviewed for the podcast is partly because I'm from Skibbereen and um, I would have had a local connection, but also because uh, I had worked for a period of months with Ian Bailey when I was 16. Uh, I had joined a local community video project we were putting together. Uh, I'm going to use the word film in inverted commas because that seems a bit grand for what we were doing. Uh, (laughs) But myself and Ian and a couple of others began working on a screenplay, which uh, became actually a finished film in commas. I did get uh, I think I got Arts Council funding and also had patronage from David Putnam who's living in the area and it was shown and it was shown in schools uh, but obviously it was very very low budget and it was something that I had uh, come up with the idea for and then Ian and another writer developed the subsequent screenplay uh, but he had had a difference of opinion with the director so he left the project actually before it was finally completed but it did mean that I suppose I would have had probably more knowledge of him uh, during a period that predated the the murder of Sophie Dupontier How how, how many years did it predate the murder by? Oh it was a few years it was a few years um, because when she died um yeah, I remember when his name began to be mentioned and getting a kind of a shock because, you know, my mother, I think, rang me and said, but isn't that? And I was like, yes. Um, and it, it's it's a story that has really mystified and, you know, appalled the community and the fact that there are still so many questions mm-hmm. to be asked uh it's just remarkable but now of course the whole world 
has picked up on the podcast. Uh, it's become it? a huge success. Uh, Sam Bungie and uh, Jennifer Ford. And they spent, I think, three years working on it. Okay, where are they from? What's their connection to it? Or Well, they're based in England and they first got in contact with me. We had a mutual friend, uh, so I, I don't totally know their circumstances, but uh, they had heard the story and immerse themselves in the okay. community it's just called the West Cork podcast yeah it's just, I've re- I've, just called I've West Cork but, but they don't really get into their own kind of story okay. too much okay. uh, they just describe how they came to West Cork to investigate it and quickly started finding more and more I suppose to um, to think about and they're two remarkable producers because that podcast like if you haven't heard it check it out it's absolutely brilliant um i think i do kind of in three of the pod in three of the episodes and to be honest i got so immersed in it that every time my own voice popped up i got a shock oh, oh who's that oh that's me <laughs> but uh, but it's a great it's it's just a great example of brilliant storytelling um so with all that media consumption do you have a what, where, where, where's your real life in the middle of all that? I, you still go to gigs, I take it. You oh, I still, do, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I love going to gigs. I'm doing loads of stuff this summer. And uh, yeah, love going to gigs. And, and you now have more time on your hands because of the radio show. But I presume you're trying to hustle the next gig because even though you have a full-time job at the Sunday Business Post. Yeah, I have a four-day week job, yeah. Yeah, you loved the radio thing. Where next outside of the Sunday Business Post for Nadine O'Regan? What, where, tell me as much as you can without, well, to get, tell me everything. Come on, spill the beans. Well, I will say that I'm not the type of person to rest on my laurels and I have never been as busy <laughs> as I've been in the last few weeks. Having um, meetings and the, and the like. Well, it's been busy and I, I really feel like, um, see, there's a difference between somebody who does a weekend radio show and then goes back to a job that is not in the media. I suppose what's important for me to say is that I am and have been immersed in media since I was 19 years old. So as far as I'm concerned, this is the end of one particular chapter. Um, But yeah, I'm not going anywhere. You're being nicely vague about it because, and I know that feeling, I'm not I'm not slagging you over it because you don't want to talk about stuff that isn't signed, sealed and delivered. You don't want to jinx a project. Um, I'm not even superstitious and I don't want to jinx projects by talking about them. You certainly don't want to tell people what you're possibly doing because you think they'll steal your idea. But you are actively pursuing. You see, it kind of gets more down to personality, like... I just really love doing what I do. Mm. So I'm going to continue doing what I do and we'll see what form that takes. Um, like one of the great things about being in the media in 2018 is that it's not just three channels or you're out. And I'm looking actively. Like, like you're saying, I don't want to jinx anything, but like it is an exciting time. There are great opportunities people have been in touch I'm really happy about that mm. and like I remember and I said it to you actually before we started the podcast I remember years ago reading an interview with Tom Dunn and Hot Press and Tom who's such a wry character said oh you know if I'd had a euro for every meeting I've had in I think he was talking about RT at the time uh, he said I'd be a very rich man and I remember reading it as a kind of a journalist and a broadcaster and Realizing that what he was saying was just really, really good advice. Because as we all know, um, everything is tentative until you sign your name. Even after you sign it, I'm, I still don't believe it until it's in production. Yeah, but but I suppose one of the things I, I just keep looking back to is uh, even when I'm not trying to work, I find myself doing bits and pieces. So I'm keeping busy and it's all good. Uh, it's a case of watch or listen to this space. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, she's not giving away much. Nadine O'Regan, books and arts editor of the Sunday Business Post. Thank you. Thank you. So thanks again.
again to Nadine O'Regan for our off-message chat. If you want to listen to previous episodes, they are all available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Pocket Casts, Acast, Google Podcasts, Podcast Addict and MyCloud and probably others too. You can sign up to get future off-message blog posts and podcasts ahead of the pack by filling out a subscription form on any individual off-message post over at patomahony.ie. And of course, you can follow and like Off Message on Twitter and Facebook at Off Message One. All shares and shout outs greatly appreciated. Till the next time, I'm Pat O'Mahony. This is Off Message, and thank you for listening.